Good evening, all. You are about to listen to part two of the British sitcom history podcast look at The Thin Blue Line. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you probably should jump back and get that one first, because we're already halfway through discussing an episode, and you've missed all the information about Rowan Atkinson. You don't want to miss that. But right now, let's get straight back into it. We're going to discuss some of the other actors that we haven't touched upon already, such as Mark Addy, who joined the cast in series two. And of course, we will be looking in detail at Ben Elton. Enjoy! Let's go back to our episode. Now, we've got this, we talked about this plot of Inspector Fowler being concerned about racism and, and they're trying to do something about that. We've got this B plot, which links up, which is mm-hmm. uh, Detective Inspector Grimm, who is wanting to join the Todgers yes. because the, he couldn't join the... Fr- Are the Freemasons particularly litigious? Because they obviously didn't want to deal with the Freemasons. So they, they create this <laughs> fictitious, I, I presume fictitious, group called the Todgers. <laughs> and, and, you know, we get, we get a lot of humour out of their, their made-up traditions and their initiation ceremonies, which is obviously just having a go at the Freemasons, but without naming them that. I mean, I'm no racist. I don't mind people coming over here, but when they do, they should be like us. People don't want a load of weird customs and funny clothes. Right, I put the hood on, see? And I kiss the turkey with me head between my legs. Grimm is, I think, the second character to Fowler. He he is... I think he's the closest thing we have to an antagonist in this, in yeah. this group. You know, he's not... Ultimately, they always end up on the same side. Yeah. Usually with Grimm losing face and, and being beaten mm-hmm. and it's all it's all very friendly but but yeah Grimm's Grimm's the antagonist in the piece we, we talked earlier about how sometimes the rules might be bent and it's complicated but ultimately Fowler's heart is in the right place Grimm's yeah. heart's very much in the wrong place <laughs> <laughs> we do see ultimately that he's a good copper like mm. he's he's interested in banging up criminals in the one episode where we see him very definitely break the rules there's no bending involved they frame a, a criminal and he is absolutely torn up about it and and feels great guilt about it mm. but yeah he's bluster he'll talk the talk but ultimately when it comes down to it is he going to grab a guy in the cells and give him a good shoe in probably not no he might look the other way when someone else does it yeah. But he's he's ultimately interested in doing the right thing. But what his right thing is, is not necessarily what society's right thing is. And for the most part, he's sympathetic to the point where we can understand where he's coming from. He's just a bit of a mm. silly, ridiculous, big, kind of blustery character. And you do feel like he's more talk than action. If we If we compare him to Fowler... We said that Fowler's this guy out of time. He's a 1950s copper who's, who's, who's doing his best. Whereas Grimm is the other way. He's a 1950s copper who hates change and he hates that all these new things have come along. And mm. why isn't it like the old days? It, it, like every episode, he'll do a bit of a rant and I'm not going to do it justice. It might be you drop one in here where he, <laughs> he tries to rant and he gets angry, but he, he's not even good at ranting because he, he sort of, the words all get mixed up and he, he, he can't yeah. quite get out what he, he's so angry about everything. I'm not having you disgracing this station with a load of wishy-washy diddums half cock up your social worker, foldy roll, blame it on society, psycho, sicko, socio, clap, trap, crap. 
I actually think that's quite well written because it would be very easy for Ben Elton to write him a really good rant. And, he, and he's written this sort of halting and this annoys me. And, oh, God, <laughs> and, and so I think that's quite well observed in that the character can't articulate himself very well. Yes. Obviously, it's there to slightly undercut him, but it is ultimately, he doesn't, he's a person who doesn't know how to express himself. Uh, yeah. He's not a person who's in touch with his emotions and, and and has thought about why he feels things. He's just, every. there's no filter really, is there, between the brain and the mm-hmm. mouth. I think a slightly more complicated character than he presents because it is a simple character. But again, with Ben Elton's writing, I think there are some layers there that are mm-hmm. deliberate. And I think that David Haig's performance is excellent. I think he he's one of the strongest things in the show. Well, I'd say David Haig, after Rowan Atkinson, is probably the best known actor in this in this cast. Well, maybe the exception of Mark Addy, but we'll talk about him later. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly, David Haig's been in loads of stuff. He, Another person who was in four weddings and a funeral. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think of him as more recently in the thick of it. He was a very good supporting character in that. Uh, and didn't he play? Wasn't he um, in the remake of Yes Prime Minister? He played Paul Eddington. That's right. Yeah, he played Hacker and that. Yes. So David Haig's history, like if you look at his earlier credits, not a lot of comedy in there. Mm. There's sort of one comedy show a year before Thin Blue Line, which is interesting because I think I do associate him with comedy. Maybe that's just my filter of what I watch. <laughs> mm. Thin Blue Line, I think, was one of the highest profile things he'd done at that point. Yes. Like you say, he's in Four Winners of Funeral, which was a huge hit, but he's not a big role in it. He's not, but it's a very memorable role because he has that excruciating <laughs> lovey-dovey moment and he gets caught <laughs> in the act. And it's I, like, I, I'm, I'm cringing thinking about it. So it's a very <laughs> memorable role. Uh, yeah, and he was obviously just getting noticed. In fact, uh, another one who, who'd won an Olivier Award, he won an Olivier Award in 1988. Wow. Which I think was like best newcomer or, you know, something like that. It was kind of like he was still relatively young at that point. And he, he's he gone on, you know, in, in terms of stage work, he's had four other Olivier nominations for his theatre work. Like proper top-end theatre work he's doing. Right. But yeah, in terms of comedy, he um, after this he was in Keeping Mum, which was a sitcom with Stephanie Cole. I have a vague memory of that, yes. Yeah, I only have a vague memory of it as well, <laughs> yes. He was one of Alan Bennett's talking heads when they did the second okay. lot of them. I don't remember that, but okay. You have to have a bit of reputation to get into Alan Bennett's talking heads, don't you? He doesn't just let yeah, you Yeah, pretty that. refined company there, yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, loads of other sort of jobbing TV credits, uh, at comedy, non-comedy. But yeah, he played Jim Hacker in a, a in a stage revival of Yes Minister, I think it was, rather than Yes Prime Minister, I think. But that was in 2010, and then obviously that went well enough that they did a revival mm. on the TV. They did Yes Prime Minister in 2013. But one of the more relevant credits here for us is that he was in a sitcom called The Right Way. Oh, you mentioned this with Mina Anwar earlier, so tell me more about that. I don't know this show. So The Right Way, 2013, written by Ben Elton, and it's <laughs> it's Inspector Grimm, but instead of a policeman, he's a health and safety officer. Right. So he's the star. He's the main character. Yes, yes, he's the lead. And it's not quite the same as Grimm, but it's obviously a very similar performance in in the way that he rants, in the way that he Mm. kind of uh, complains about things. But he's a very officious health and safety officer, and he wants to make everyone else's life made hell because he's trying to do everything by the the most efficient way possible and uh, uh, time and motion and and all that sort of thing. It's very Ben Elton. And it's something we see in The Thin Blue Line as well. Like, how often 
and Inspector Fowler is moaning about, oh, the banks uh, never open when you need them to be. Oh, the trains never run on time. Why is that? Yeah. It's so Ben Elton. Like, that is his stock in trade yeah. when he was doing stand-up. And so the right way is that, except it's entirely that. Mm-hmm. And it's about 20 years too late because this was made in 2013. It just feels, again, it feels out of date because it is that traditional sitcom. Susan, is that a satellite bin bag? What? It is. It's a satellite bin. How many times do I have to tell you, girls, when the swing bin is full, you have to empty it? Creating a satellite out of a plastic carrier bag from the supermarket can only defer and redouble the inconvenience whilst simultaneously diminishing the quality of the home environment. Uh, it's all a bit ridiculous, but I will say for for David Haig, it's a nice performance. It's very similar to Inspector Grimm, but in the, in the bits that I watched, he, he got to do a bit more physical stuff. Mm. And did it very well, uh, for what it's worth. But he's, he's a very distinctive-looking chap, David Haig, and he's kept that look, hasn't he? That sort of that, that, that sort of balding, but keeping his hair, got the big moustache. And he's, <laughs> I've never seen him look any other way, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's obviously, he went, he went bald to a certain level at 30, and then it's just stayed there. It stayed that <laughs> way, <time>. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that gives him that, that look, that hair and moustache... You think about Inspector Grimm, that's how that guy looks, isn't it? You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> he looks yeah, old-fashioned. Yeah. He looks reactionary. He looks like an old-fashioned reactionary character who's going to be angry yeah. about stuff. <laughs> yeah, and who watches Minder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the Sweeney and was like, yeah, the good yeah. old days. He wants to roll over the hood of his car and, yeah. <laughs> and jump Yes. So I think this would be a good chance to talk about Grimm's sidekicks because they do change. Mm. They change across the two series, don't they? Yes. So in the first series, it's Kevin Allen playing D.I. Cray. Oh, D.C. Cray, sorry. He's a real sleaze, isn't he? He's, he's like he's like the he's all the worst bits of Grimm without any of the redeeming features. That's it. He's got no charm at all. <laughs> but yeah. he he does just throw in the odd quip. Uh, he's always eating. That seems to be his character trait. Yeah. And he's just he'll like make some kind of off color joke. Of, you know, that's... So another petition from Lavender Close about the loud sex noises. Ah, the noisy nympho at number nine. Great balls of steaming ooja. <laughs> that woman's still at it. I suppose we better bring her in. Like good asking her to come quietly, I suppose. <laughs> There's a place for smutty innuendo, can't And that place is on birds of a feather. <laughs> uh, but actually, I think it works as a character because they don't over-rely on him. They just let sure. him be that little chip-in character. And that's fine. It's just sort of a, a sidekick to Grimm, but he obviously doesn't respect him at all. <laughs> and and, yeah. uh, and realises that Grimm is a bit of a ridiculous person. The actor Kevin Allen, I know, I, I knew him from, again, comic strip. And he was a sort yeah. of French and Saunders uh, supporting actor as well. He was in a lot of their sketches. But what, what I, I, I feel like he was one of those within that group back then. But I don't feel like I've seen him since then. What what did he what did he go on to do? Yeah, I think he was a jobbing actor that kind of fell into that group rather than. Mm. Uh, so Ben Elton wrote a play called Silly Cow in 1991, starring Dawn French, and he was in that. So he'd worked right. with Ben Elton before, definitely, and obviously, yeah, he was in that crowd, like you say. But Thin Blue Line was kind of his only what you'd call a regular TV role, you know, like a proper okay. TV role. And really, not long after this, he stopped acting. He went on to be a director. 
He's a uh, Peter okay. Howitt uh, style. Yes. And his kind of notable hit in 1997, which established him, was, uh, I think, something you'll be familiar with. He wrote and directed Twin Town. Twin Town. Oh, marvellous. Yeah, with, with oh, Risa right. Fons. Which is... It's a great film. One of the most 90s films you'll ever see. Yeah, it is great. I haven't it's seen that, it for so long. Twin Town, I would say, was a bit of a post-Train Spotting. Not, not quite a copy of Train Spotting, but very much a companion piece. Uh, God, I haven't seen it for years, but I loved yeah. it at the time. I, 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 I think that would be worth watching again. So, yeah, so yeah. Right, Kevin, Allen, Kevin Allen directed that. That's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he went on to do a bit more kind of slightly high-profile things in, in a bit of a Peter Howitt way. You know, I kind of had a couple of flirtations with the mainstream stuff and never that kind of left it behind. He, he directed mm. Agent Cody Banks 2. He, he did that right. one. Agent Cody Banks 2. Two. That that's that's a gig, isn't it? That's a that's a paying job. You know, you're not doing yeah. that because it's your it's your vocation and you've got a vision. You're doing that for for a few quid. And 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 far be, I'm not criticising. I'm like that's oh, yeah, good. Yeah, that's, yeah. That means you you've got a good reputation for getting the job done. But yeah, having said that, he seems to have slipped away from that. He seems to have, in more recent years much more focused on I'm going to do things I'm interested in. And he do, he mm. seems to do a lot of Welsh language stuff. And uh, okay. yeah, what you might call niche. Uh, theatre and not just sort of straight up theatre he seems to have lots of like projects and kind of you know bringing theatre to the valleys or whatever that's okay. a slightly uh, reductive way of putting it but <laughs> I understand like community project sort of things but yeah obviously uh, uh, someone who is producing things all the time but I think sure. he's doing stuff he, he's interested in uh, he did uh, however he directed the first series of Benidorm uh, just as a sitcom okay, connection right. there so you know that was 2007 so I think sort of pretty much since then he's sort of doing his own thing really yeah. Uh, but yeah he also oh just another little nod for you obviously he's got Welsh connections he directed the video for I Am The Mob by Catatonia oh, uh, back in the, the 90s the best band of the 1990s I know you're a big fan of I'm a massive fan of Catatonia I still am <laughs> I, oh, well, that's, well that's well, that, forget Twin Town that's the best thing he's ever done <laughs> So Mark Addy, Mark Addy comes in and replaces him. Slightly different character. Do you want to talk about the character first before we talk about the, the actor? Yeah, DC Boyle, a much more hardcore character. A much more mm. of a nasty piece of work. Yes. Uh, whereas Cray was a sleaze, like you say. Bit of a caricature. Yeah, it's a comedy character. Whereas Boyle has a real edge to him. And yeah. we see him quite happily break the law, encourage others to break the law. Yeah. And I think it's quite nice, actually. It brings in this character that we haven't really got in the first series that is the proper darker side of policing. The, the ones that, whereas we really go to a bit of length with Grimm to go, you know, actually, you know, ultimately when it comes down to it, he's a good bloke. Mm. Where with Boyle, it's just like, mm, he's the kind of nasty piece of work. You see, Kev, no problem. There's a big illegal late night drink this Friday. Lots of the boys are coming out. You've got to come out too. Yes, well, I don't know about that, Gary. As a policeman, I just don't feel comfortable breaking the law. I mean, I know that sounds stupid, Look, but I... mate, <laughs> coppers stick together. <laughs> and if we have to bend the rules, then we do it together. That's the police culture. And you'll do a lot better on the force if you admit you're one of us from the start. So you come out, all right? I'm out on Friday. Yeah. And it is, again, I think it's quite a well-drawn character because he's just a bit of a blokey bloke. Whereas when Goody sort of makes a suggestive remark, it doesn't land. If he said something to Habib, she'd be actually like, oh, that's, yeah. that's gross. And, and perhaps a little bit threatened. But like I say, I think it's quite a well-observed character because, you know, 90% of the time he's doing a good job. He's getting some police work done. He's a bit of a lad. He likes to play football on Sundays and go to the pub mm -hmm. and get drunk. But he's a good bloke. But then you just see, uh, sometimes that goes too far. 
I think it's a nice observed character because I think we've all worked with someone you don't you just yeah. don't want to get on the wrong side of them. You know, they're all right as long as you're being their mate and you're having a laugh with them and laugh along mm. with their jokes. And I think it's a really nice character that brings a slight edge and I think Mark Hardy plays it really well actually. I don't think he does much with it. He doesn't play it full he's not playing comedy really, but it's 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 what it needs. And and Mark Hardy himself, this was still relatively early in his career. Well, I, I think of Mark Addy's big break as the Full Monty. So was this before the Full Monty? Yes, it's the year before Full Monty. Full Monty right. was 97. And so, yeah, this was, again, I think one of his first regular roles on a major show. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. from that, he's a Yorkshire lad. He went to RADA, but he's got that kind of gruff Yorkshire nature to him. So obviously that got him a part in the Full Monty. I'll tell you what's interesting, Alan. I, I The Full Monty obviously is a comedy. This is a comedy. The, the next big thing that I, I think of him, he was in the, the live action Flintstone sequel, which was probably <laughs> dreadful. I've never seen it. But, but you know, it was a, was a Hollywood role for him. Fair play, you know, go and take the opportunity. The, the point I'm trying to make here is that all those things are comedic performances. Hmm. I don't think of Mark Addy as a comedian. I think of him as a serious actor. And I'm not really sure why I'm giving him that credit because a lot of the things he's done have been funny. I've seen him more recently in a lot in TV dramas, and and I think he's very good. I think he's a very good actor. He was in he was in something called White House Farm recently, which was about a family that was murdered. It was a true life oh, yeah. crime, and he played the copper, and he he was very very good in that. And I've seen him in a few things as a just as you know in serious roles, and I think he's a great he's a great character actor. I mean, you don't have to go from one to the other, do you? You can't do both. True. But um, I, do you know, weirdly, I when I was looking up Mark Hardy and doing a bit of research on him and everything, I was just like, this is a massive career that I'm not really familiar with. I think Mark Hardy, to me, is this and, you know, <laughs> Full Monty. And I, I, I think I've just slightly missed him. But not only has he had a, a productive career, I'm not even talking about, oh, he's a regular working. He's had some pretty major roles. I think it's just sort of passed me by slightly. But yeah, when I was looking at him, obviously the Full Monty made him uh, a bit of a mainstream star. Are, definitely a breakthrough mm. role. Although having said that, in, in 97 also, um, so this would, I guess, would have been made before Full Monty made him a, a well-known star. He did a sitcom called Sunnyside Farm with him and Phil Daniels as the two leads. And it's crap. It's really bad. Are the cows in the fields? No. Are the cows in the barn? No. They were looking at me funny. I got scared. <laughs> You've killed them, haven't you? No. I lost them. <laughs> you lost them. I lost them. How the hell can you lose 15 dirty great half-ton cars? I put them on a bus. <laughs> you, you know how I feel about Phil Daniels. We've spoken about this before. Oh, you would not like that because he is... Phil Daniels is a grotesque character and yeah. they're brothers and they're running a farm or something like that. Mark Addy plays like the simpleton brother and he's really like playing a proper yeah. kind of stupid character. It's, it's a terrible show. But yeah, so uh, yeah, he went mainstream. He went to America and played Fred Flintstone. He took over John Goodman as Fred mm. Flintstone. And yes, that is famously a terrible film that everyone hates. You know, I th- I've got a horrible feeling. I went to the cinema to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember very little of it. I think it was probably in my drinking days. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's famously a terrible film. But he got the part. He went to America and, and was yeah, getting these yeah. big roles. And then I found out because I thought, you know, he's plied a trade playing, like, the fat mate, the funny bloke in this, like, side character. And he has done a lot of that. But he was in an American sitcom. He went and broke America. He did a sitcom called Still Standing. Now, you sent me a clip of this, and I watched it. Uh, so how, how successful was that, then? When you well, I don't know, America? because... 
it, it ran from 2002 to 2006, which suggests it's pretty successful. But I've never heard of it. And from what I've seen of it, it is the most basic family dynamic bog-standard sitcom that you could possibly create at a time even by 2002 where that was been done to death. Well, I think that's the point, isn't it? Well, you, sh- you showed me a clip and it made me think of King of Queens, Everyone Loves Raymond, those yeah, sorts yeah. of family dynamic dramas. I am guessing it came after those two and it was a bit of a knockoff copy by some of the network of it. Yeah. Well, I didn't get the sense it was doing it in a postmodern, ironic way. It's just doing a crap family sitcom. And to be fair, what I watched of it, which wasn't much, it, it seemed like a fairly bog-standard sitcom. It didn't. It wasn't terrible or anything. Um, it was those classic American sitcom, and he's doing a yeah. Chicago accent. Okay, as a businessman, I'm going to give you some important career advice. Put your nose to the grindstone. And by grindstone, I mean his butt. Colleen's <laughs> the brown noser. I'd like to think I could get this promotion on my hard work and merit. Hard work and merit. Been in America long? You sent me that clip to watch because I, I knew we would talk about it. I thought you were going to say exactly what you said about James Dreyfus's American <laughs> adventure, that it, it lasted half a season and was cancelled. Yeah, like exactly. Five years, that's amazing. And in terms of sitcom, he was in a Sky One sitcom called Trolled. He was in that for a few years, oh, uh, that, which yeah. again is because it's Sky. It sort of passed me by. I'm not really sure about it, but he was in that. He's done theatre work as well. You know, I I saw actually that he was in a play directed by Richard Wilson. Just to connect it to our previous um, episodes, I think he, he seems to be having a fine career. I I I think I may have, if you'd asked me this two weeks ago, I may have disrespected him a little bit <laughs> as someone I hadn't seen for fifteen years. But I got to give him credit, you know. Let's get back to our episode. Uh, we, I think we, you know, why don't you, why don't you wrap up the the plot and what happens? Well, yeah. So uh, in terms of the grim stuff, we have him trying to join the Todgers, and uh, we just, yeah, it's basically quite a lot of silly physical comedy in terms of their initiation ceremony. And there's the mistaken identity when uh, Melvin Hayes yeah. arrives, and he's actually from the Todgers, but everyone assumes because it's Melvin Hayes that he's uh, he, he, what, what, what they're expecting someone to do some training on. Well. The yeah, they, they've they've asked a police officer who is a homosexual. Uh, That's right. Yes, to, to come in and, and kind of do a little bit of thing about hey. Gays diversity force, training. Okay, that's know. what that's what I'm trying to say. So they <laughs> yeah. they all naturally assume, well, it's Melvin Hayes, so he must be here to do the diversity. And he's wearing training. a pink suit. And <laughs> yeah, <whatever>. yeah. <laughs> and he couldn't be more camp. And I tell you what's interesting. Before, so obviously there's a mistaken identity. This is the guy that Grimm wants to impress because he's from the Todgers, but but Grimm thinks he's this he's, he's a gay copper, and. What, what was really interesting to me was that Grimm was terrified of him. <laughs> Not that he was uh, dismissive or angry or homophobic in that na- nasty way. He was just absolutely terrified of this gay man. <laughs> and that, I feel, is very 1995 as well. Like yes. that. Like, you wouldn't play that character now because at one point he actually says, like, no, there shouldn't be gays in the police force or at least they shouldn't go on about it kind of thing. It's like, I understand that happens, but it's a world away from mine. I don't want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And so when there's someone, a very camp man, coming and tickling his hand, it's like, it's absolutely (laughs) terrifying, yeah. That really felt like it put it in a time (laughs) because you certainly wouldn't play it like that these days. Yeah, definitely. And it is one of the very few examples where you see Grimm slightly cross a line where you go, oh, that's a bit uh, out of order. Hmm. We, we kind of have that element and then we jump to conclude our previous plot, which is 
that they have to go and arrest an asylum seeker who has failed in his attempt for asylum and he has to be deported. And that's what spurred on this kind of ism conversation Mm -hmm. in that, you know, Habib thinks it's terrible that you're sending someone back to a country where they're probably going to be killed. That's that's why they've come over here seeking asylum. And again, as as we've said, it feels like quite a nice open discussion about those difficulties and yeah. You know, how it's not an easy answer to just go, well, you know, open the gates, let everyone in. But at the same time, you don't want to be uh, throwing people out. Well, look, so, the, so the punchline of the of the show here is that Inspector Fowler arrests the guy who he assumes is the illegal immigrant, uh, who's a black guy who's wearing kind of Muslim garb. And of course, this turns out to be the French member of the European Parliament. Yes. And it's I, I understand what they're doing here. And it's definitely clunky. Uh, like in, in all the praise I've given to Ben Elton's writing and that I feel like it's quite a nice measured discussion approach to what he's dealing with. This is clunky. They turn up, they knock on the door of this house where they know this asylum seeker is. A, a black man answers the door with a slightly foreign accent and they arrest him. They don't ask his name. They don't identify him. They mm-hmm. don't even tell him what he's being arrested for. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's, it's not realistic in our police sense. Like Fowler wouldn't do that. He's better than that. Yes. But we have to have him do that for this conclusion to work. That is revealed. There's kind of the the big reveal of that. And like that is racism, right? That is an Inspector Fowler. It, certainly by today's standards, mm-hmm. you would be in trouble for that. Yes. We get the sense that he's going to be in trouble for that, but more in a sense of the mayor is going to shout at him a bit as opposed yes. to he's going to get officially disciplined. Yeah, he'd lose his job. <laughs> and there is a nice moment on a personal level at the end where he is genuinely disappointed with himself he understands mm. the mistake he's made and you you know from his character that he will make steps to improve that yes and that is again that's that ben elton approach to kind of you know this is a character who's doing his best and will make mistakes but he we know he's a good person and i think that's fine and perhaps by 1990 standards, you could be racist and then go, oh, sorry, I was a bit racist there, wasn't I? You know, whereas yeah. <laughs> now, you know, it would be a slightly different story. It would be a red line. So, yeah, a bit of a clunky end to that. And then we get a clunkiness on top of that in which we pull back to this storyline of, oh, do you remember I was looking in someone's window earlier and saw this? And it just gives us this conclusion to the Grimm storyline in which he's Mm -hmm. being uh, initiated into the Todgers. And through the window, it looks... Uh, it looked uh, like a bizarre, aggressive thing, and it actually was just a strange ritual. But because they turn up, Grimm's initiation is thwarted, and uh, yeah, once again, he is the loser in the situation. That does all feel a little bit crowbarred, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, and, and it's obviously the plot here is all that ism stuff, and the Grimm stuff is a little subplot, but they manage to tie it in. I think Ben Elton's writing is really good that he will pull those subplots in, tie them together, mm. get them interacting with each other, and it plays into that whole judging by appearances. Okay, it's not particularly subtle, but it's that's okay. It's not. It doesn't have to be. It's a sitcom. Well, I think that's the episode. Now we've got the big Ben Elton shaped um, elephant in the room that we're going to talk about. But it, it, it occurs to me that we've missed a character, PC Gladstone, mm. and I think that's quite telling. In the yes. <laughs> he doesn't really add much, does he? <laughs> so he's the he's the sort of elder statesman. We have mentioned him. He's Trinidadian. 
And he's played by Rudolph Walker, who's probably best yes. known for... He's been in more than a thousand episodes of EastEnders. Yes. I, but I, I mean, I've literally... I'd forgotten he was in The Thin Blue Line until I watched it again this week. So what, what, do, you, what do you make of this character? What's he bringing to the table? He is strangely underused, isn't he? It's a weird mm. thing. I, I like it in that he just drops in the odd, like, quirky anecdote or something. It is quite funny, often... There's a there's one of the episodes we watched. They're talking about graffiti, and he he goes off on this little um, rant about how he blames fridge magnets for graffiti. Yeah. I've seen it at my niece's house. Every time her toddler does a nasty little scribble, it gets stuck up on the fridge. Yeah. And everyone else will say how nice it is. So young people grow up thinking that their stupid scribblings are somehow wonderful. So they carry on scribbling. Forever searching for that warm glow of appreciation that they used to feel when standing round the fridge. I, I really liked that metaphor. That was very good. <laughs> but then he just disappears. He sort of shrinks back into the background again, and that's yeah. uh, that's it. That's but again, that that material is pure Ben Elton. Like you can see him. Exactly. Like, yes. Yeah. Do you know what I blame? Fridge magnets. Yes, ladies yeah, and gentlemen, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Fridge magnets. <laughs> like he would. That's yeah. how he would do it. Yeah, so Gladstone, yeah, he sort of falls into the background a little bit too much. And I think that's the character, you know, he's obviously an elderly, uh, well, he's a, he's an older guy. He's the only person in this older than you, Gareth. Um, just, just so Thank you, know. you. <laughs> uh, Yeah, so he's an older gentleman and he's, you know, he's done his time and now he's just taking it easy behind the desk. You know, like that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would like a bit more from him. Uh, but I think the idea is that that's what a police station has. You know, you've got younger people, you've got this old, yeah. you know, the older guy there who's just sort of trying to get by. I, I'm I suppose right it's a that. bit like when we watched Time Gentleman Please and we said, you know, what does that stereotype pub have? It has the guy with glasses who everybody calls a prof. It has the old guy who nobody really knows. It's got the, yeah. it's got all of those little boxes to tick and then they create a character around that stereotype. Maybe Ben Elton did a little bit of cursory research. What does a police station <laughs> look like? How does a group dynamic work? And yeah, maybe there's just that always that older PC in the background who just keeps his head down and gets on with it. It did make me question, actually, obviously in Thin Blue Line, two of our principal seven characters we have, two of them are not white. And yeah. I was thinking, like, I wonder if pre-95, how often that happened, especially in the sense that it's not really relevant. Like, whereas in Love Thy Neighbor, yeah. kind of the whole point is like, hey, it's a black character and there's a white character. Whereas in this, they, you know, ultimately they don't have to be. It informs their characters and it means they have a certain point of view in, in their society. But, you know... If you'd made Goody a, a black man and Gladstone an old white guy, you, you could still play that, you know. Sure. And I, you know, I couldn't, I can't think of anything specific. Certainly not with two <laughs> ethnic minorities in one cast. No, you're right. And I think, you know, that's going to be a deliberate choice in terms of representing uh, a, a police force, a, a sort of modern twentieth century nineties police force, and the difference also between Gladstone, who is from Trinidad and has had quite a different upbringing, and then come to Britain as opposed to Habib, who has been brought up in Britain and is mm-hmm. has uh, kind of her parents' uh, first generation. So they have different outlooks. And again, I think that's something that it would perhaps be nicer to have explored a bit more with Gladstone. We get a lot more from Habib. Yeah. But that, and again, that's a deliberate decision from Ben Elton, isn't it? To inform those characters with that background. Yeah. yeah I, I, maybe I'm overplaying it. I'm, I'm not sure he'll have written a great big green book of uh, backstory for every character. Yeah. But 
they're bringing something that an all-white, not cast, but an all-white all characters wouldn't. And Rudolph Walker himself is from Trinidad. You know, he moved to Britain when yeah. he was yeah. a young man. So, you know, you, you would hope that the, the actor would be able to bring something to that that the writer perhaps couldn't. <laughs> you know, a 40-year-old white man from, mm. uh, uh, you know. We're talking about uh, ben Elton's writing. Let's, uh, let's get into Ben Elton then. So we started with Rowan Atkinson. Well, Ben Elton, like Rowan Atkinson, is one of those people who always seems older than he is because I think he just <laughs> got successful very young and but never looked that young. And, and Ben Elton, I've heard him talk about this in interviews. He's like the he's the bridge between the the slightly more working class alternative comedy styles, Edmondson and Mail. Yes, and the Oxbridge uh, <laughs> kind and of Brian Laurie. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he uh, ended up studying drama at Manchester University and. He was two years below Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson mm-hmm. and became friends with Rick Mayle specifically. He was always more interested in being a writer than a performer, it seems. And uh, he ended up doing stand-up because he thought it would be a good way to sell his wares. Just like to make people go, oh, this guy's got some good material. He always considered himself a writer, didn't he? It was always about how could he, how could he best present his written material. And yeah. for a while there, he figured out the best way for him to do it was to just do it himself. Exactly, yes. But obviously, his big break really was The Young Ones. Well, Rick Mayle, we talked earlier about Rowan Atkinson being the next big thing in 1979 and everyone clamouring for him. And Rick Mayle was the one after him, wasn't he? So a couple of years later, everybody wanted a piece yeah. of Rick Mayle and would basically, he could write his own checks. Yeah, that's it. And, and so Rick Mayle had this idea, uh, and like I say, he was, he was working with his girlfriend at the time, Lisa Meyer, to write some sort of sitcom-y kind of thing that incorporated mm-hmm. some characters that they'd been working with, i.e. the Rick character that he did on stage, the poet, you know, the yeah. people's poet. And then Nigel Planer had been doing some stuff as a hippie kind of character. And yeah. Adrian Edmondson, the Vivian character in The Young Ones is basically the Dangerous Brothers. It's the same kind the dangerous of... Dangerous Brothers that he and Rick used to do, yeah. And so he thought, right, I need someone who can actually write to help structure this and put this together. Oh, I'll go to Ben Elton, Farty, who I know from uni, my old mate. So... Mm-hmm that's they just met up and said oh shall we write this together and ben elton went off and wrote it basically i think this is going to be a recurring motif as we talk about ben elton that he's the worker bee so he'll 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 work with someone else but he's the guy who churns it out who turns the all those crazy funny ideas into a script yeah and obviously with the young ones and another sitcom that broke the mold and and really changed tv comedy as we know it Mm. in a lot of ways it, we'll have to do that obviously at some point because it's sure. it's we can't just sum it up here but it was a success it tapped into a market that kind of hadn't been tapped into previously and they were all very suddenly extremely hot and uh, everyone wanted a piece of them and yeah. what came of that was that uh, someone was putting together this sketch show called Alfresco with all these uh, you know this with the, the Cambridge mm-hmm. footlights lot and they wanted Rick Mail uh, to come into it. And Rick Mail said, mm, I don't know if I want to do that. But uh, you should talk to this guy, Ben Elton, I know. He's much more kind of in tune with that type of thing. <laughs> and he'd probably be better for you. And that's how he got the job on Alfresco. So did Alfresco come come, uh, come completely after The Young Ones have finished? Or was it in between series? No, how, it was, how have I misremembered? Ha- yeah, halfway. So Young Ones, right. 82, okay. Alfresco, 83. Right. Uh, and yeah, and then after that, Really, for Ben Elton, he he did something called Happy Families, which was not yes, particularly success. French and Saunders, that was that was great. So again, this is you know we talked about Blackadder earlier. This was my you know I was a, I was a kid watching TV comedy. I loved French and Saunders. 
Happy Families was Adrian Edmondson and uh, mm. and French and Saunders. It was a really, really, it was a, a kind of episodic sitcom yeah. where we would follow a different member of the family each time. So it was, it was sort of loosely structured, but it was basically a, a different show each week. But it was not a stage sitcom. It was not a three three wall mm-hmm. in front of a studio audience sitcom. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the only time Ben Elton's tried that and didn't didn't work. And he's gone back right. to doing classic sitcom after that. Uh, and and yes, one one the next sort of major thing he did is he was brought on to the team uh, to do Blackadder Two with Richard Curtis. I've written in my notes here, started with the young ones, then saved Blackadder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, as we've already talked about with Ron Atkinson, Blackadder, again, the best thing the 80s produced, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and then everyone loves it. Arguably, yes. Another kind of, what was essentially a failure, he did Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. Is that, is that available? Because I, I remember watching Filthy Rich and Cat Flap and basically thinking, this is not quite as good as the young ones, but I like it. And I have literally never seen a minute of it since it was aired. Yeah, it just never seemed to do anything. I interestingly, I, I watched an interview with Ben Elton from 1988, which was just after that that came yeah. out, and he said, you know, yeah, okay, it wasn't a success, and he says, but I liked, I like what's there, I like what's in it, and and he said, I I think there is room in the schedules for a real proper knockabout slapstick nonsense comedy. It's it's definitely the precursor to bottom, isn't it? Exactly, and that's bottom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that, exactly. that's so bottom was the way they actually managed to get that to work. So Ben Elton, so when when within this uh, we're talking about the things he's written, where does Saturday Live come? Because Saturday Live was very much of its time as well. It was a conscious copy of Saturday Night Live in America, but it was more yeah. stand-up comedy. There was some sketch in there, but it was it was stand-ups, a bit of variety acts. We talked about uh, Al Murray being on there doing his noise act, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but but Ben Elton was the MC, so he you know obviously introduced the acts, but he always did a monologue. He did some stand-up material, and that that image of him in the shiny suit doing his sort of ranty, angry stand-up material—that's Ben Elton. That's that's Ben Elton as a performer. Yeah, a git in a shiny suit. <laughs> yeah. What a fabulous budget, eh? All the commentators saying an intelligent budget, a thoughtful budget, a clever budget. Brilliant, eh? We've got four million unemployed. What have they done? Put the price of fags up. I mean, that'll solve it, won't it? That'll solve everything out. You know, if you're a family with two children, you're eight pence a week better off. You know, it's really crucial stuff, isn't it? You know. Ben Elton, when he was doing that stand-up material, you know, there's that famous line, little bit of politics, whenever he would do anything yeah. vaguely uh, topical. But there was actually some really good observational humour in there. I'd really like to see some of that old stuff again. You know, I, one thing that came to mind as we were watching Thin Blue Line was, I remember a stand-up routine about standing in the post office queue and the other queue's moving faster than this one and getting really angry about it and should I move, should yeah. I stay, should I move, should I stay? And he did a really good bit of material about that. And we saw in one of the Thin Blue Line episodes where Raymond goes to the bank and mm. uh, PC Goody's behind him and is he in the right queue and all that. And I thought, well, this is, uh, this is just drawing on his old material. Yeah, but in a, in a, in a perfectly acceptable way. You know, it doesn't feel like... Oh, just... oh, sure, yeah, it's not a criticism. But the point I'm making is, I think the misconception about Ben Elton was was that it was this great radical firebrand left wing comedian, and that's used as a stick to beat him because he then went on to work with, uh, you know, the establishment. Yeah, really, it was observational comedy. You know, it was it was relatable comedy that anyone could laugh at. You didn't need to be a lefty to laugh at his material. Well, you come to a good point here in that it's it's very easy to hate Ben Elton, and that seems to be why so many people do it. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, well, he I am, a- if I haven't already, I, I've dropped the hint here, but I am an Elton apologist. <laughs> I don't, I don't love everything he's done. In fact, a lot of the things he's done um, in the last 10 or 15, 20 years, I, I don't like. <laughs> But that doesn't make him a bad person. That's okay. That doesn't invalidate the good work that he's done that I do like. And I think it's totally unfair. I think there's an element here of, you know, the the revolution eats its young. So people yeah. on the left like to hate someone who they perceive as one of their own who defects more than they might even hate the enemy. Mm. But I, I don't think that's fair. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily even a fair criticism of him. You know, just because you write a musical with Queen, that doesn't mean that you... That, that means that you just like Queen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that you're an a, a, a unapologetic Tory. <laughs> he did work with Andrew Lloyd Webber, though. <laughs> well, sure, sure. But again, you know, it's quite possible. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. worked with some right dickheads over the years. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that I agree with them on everything. I'm I'm with you on that one. I think I, if if it came down to it, I would be an Elton apologist as well. And I was trying to work out why do people not like him? And you can point to like the work he's done and all that. Has he sold out? I'm like no, not really. If you want to come down to it, but I think what it really comes down to is he's a bit of a smarmy git, mm. <laughs> yes. and always has yeah, been. Yeah. And in the '80s, when he was a young man, he could pass that into being a smarmy git who's like challenging authority whereas it just comes to a point where it's just like i don't think he's very likable presence mm-hmm. I, I i don't think he, he comes across like you wouldn't want to get stuck in a conversation with him <laughs> I, I see what you're saying i see what you're saying and i think yeah. that just fuels you know it's easy to hate him yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a personality trait there. You know, uh, we're, we're supposed to believe that he, he's not allowed to have any mainstream success because he used to bang on about Thatcher and, yeah. and that's some sort of betrayal, but maybe he's just a bit of a git. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's why people are sort of taken against him. I don't know. I mean, that, that that's completely unfair. He might be a lovely one. I have no idea. <laughs> There is an element that comes to everyone where the person you are when you're 22 is not the person you are when you're 42 or, or 62. God knows that's true. Time, things change around you. So even if you don't change, you're going to find yourself out of place and out of time. And that's okay. That's normal. And in fact, it's necessary for society to move on and culture to change. But if you're such a firebrand, as you say, if you're such a kind of like, hey, anti-authority, down with thatch kind of mentality it's like seeing johnny rotten in a lurpak advert it's just like what what's going what are you doing here why and i wouldn't normally judge someone for selling butter it's like yeah rowan atkinson's done about a thousand adverts like make your money whatever right but when it's johnny rotten it feels wrong (laughs) and and you think oh so you're, you're, I see what you're saying. So you're thinking that Johnny Rotten and or Ben Elton should be held to a higher anti-establishment. <laughs> well, standard. I'm not saying they should be. I think they've created that expectation of them. Yeah. And then so therefore yeah. they are. Yes. I think the Rowan Atkinson example is good because no one... No one accuses him of being a sellout. Although, you know, I mean, he is, isn't he? <laughs> Those Johnny he's, English he's exactly... films are Barclay card adverts strung out exactly. for an hour and a half. <laughs> like, exactly. It's, and, and, and nobody I has. don't begrudge him it. I'm not saying he's a sellout. Uh, well, I suppose I am saying he's a sellout. What I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with that. Why shouldn't <laughs> yeah. he? Why shouldn't he be paid for his, uh, his labour? And yeah. I feel exactly the same way about Ben Elton. And as I said earlier, he is a worker bee. God knows how many novels he's written. He's written plays. Mm. He's written musicals. He's written sitcoms. He's, he's written movies. He's, he, he's a writer. You know, he churns yeah. out material and people like it. People pay yeah. for it. And why should we begrudge him that success? I've heard interviews with Ben Elton saying that 
from the very beginning, all he wanted was he wanted to be successful. He wanted people to to see and hear what he had written, which I think is uh, admirable honesty for any creative person. That's of course you want people to see what you've created. Mm. And those novels, you know, he tackles some big things in those novels. Like one, I think his first novel is about climate change and environmentalism yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. At a time when it was a big thing at that in the late eighties, early nineties, whenever it was, but. I read a lot of those novels. I used to, you oh, know, I, I, I'm I thinking did, yeah. about when I was, uh, I lived in London and I used to get the tube for a couple of hours every day and I, I was a voracious reader and I, I went through all of his novels. They were just such easy reads. You know, yeah. they're well-written. They're well-written. They're funny. They're just, just just easy to read. And that's an enormous skill. Yeah. And I, I read them as well. I've never been a much of a novel reader. I'm more of a non-fiction guy, but yeah, I, I think let's not bang on about it. Ben Elton, he's all right with us. <laughs> it's, it's all right by me <laughs> but having said that having said that i'm getting a bit defensive of him but i will fully acknowledge a lot of his later work it's not for me yeah so let's talk about because you've mentioned earlier the sitcom what was it called the right way that david yeah. haig and mina anwar were in mm-hmm. i'd not heard of that i must confess so ben elton wrote that so just t- let's talk let's focus on sitcoms so tell me what he did after thin blue line sitcom wise well, his next sitcom, as far as I can tell, was Blessed in 2005 mm. with Ardlo Hanlon, which ran for one series and then like didn't do anything, uh, right. same as The Right Way. And yeah, in terms of television sitcom, he was pretty bereft uh, until mm. all of a sudden he nailed it with Upstart Crow, yes. which has been a major success and again has kind of rejuvenated a certain sitcom style that Ben mm-hmm. Elton obviously really likes. And I think he... If you watch The Right Way, for example, it just feels so old-fashioned. Yeah. Like, the thin blue line feels old-fashioned, but it's like, okay, well, it was the 90s, that's fine. But 20 years later, still doing the same thing. Yeah, I see. So with Upstart Crow, what he's found is a way to fashion something from... Something he's obviously interested in, is willing to kind of put that research in and, and, and do the time. Mm. And a great performer, and it, it would be so easy to look at... Upstart Crow and go, 30 years earlier, this would be Rowan Atkinson playing William Shakespeare. Yes. It's, you know, it wouldn't be exactly the same, of course, but it's a very similar type. He's found someone who can kind of translate what he's doing. And Upstart Crow certainly has, for me, a rare exception of actually being something I've watched from the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I was hearing such good things about it that I went out of my way to watch it. And I, I don't really, I'm not, I'm very much a sitcom historian. I'm not very good with contemporary yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And then I watched the second series and I was a bit like, okay, this is kind of the same again. And mm. it's something I saw in the Thin Blue Line with only 14 episodes. Already I'm starting to see repeated gags, the same yeah. kind of double entendre, the same kind of wordplay, alliteration to make something sound very verbose. And I started getting the same thing with Upstart Crow, even in the second series. And it was like, okay, well. Mm. well I think one of the one of the strengths of Blackadder was that they changed the time period. They changed the setting every series. So you only got six or seven episodes of each one. Mm. And that, that enabled them to, I don't know, refresh things. Although the character, central character was the same, certainly in series two to four. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's... Uh, we, we've talked a lot about Ben Elton there. I think we've both put our cards on the table as Elton apologists. But let's just return and finish up Thin Blue Line. So yeah. what's your what's your conclusion looking back on it? I, I do enjoy it. I don't think it's a great sitcom, I, but it's a good sitcom. I, think, I really like that it's sort of telling of its time, the characters that he, he's created there. 
exist in a kind of mid-90s world, but it doesn't feel stuck in a time. It feels yeah. like you can still watch it and get it now. But I would yeah. I would be curious to see, say, a, an 18-year-old now watch this and see how it played to them. Mm. But I, I like it. I think it's a sincere effort. I think it's well-written. I mm-hmm. think it just falls into getting repetitive uh, by the time we got to 14 episodes. And I think that's okay to end it there. And uh, I, was, I was happy that there was no more of it, put it that way. Yeah. Well, it was definitely better than it was in my memory. I, I'd not seen it since it had aired. And I was not looking forward to watching it, if I'm 100% honest with you. <laughs> but it was okay. It was okay. I'm not going to say that I loved it, but it was certainly better than my memory. Yeah. What you were saying about it being of its time or not necessarily of its time, I think it was. Like we said earlier, you know, the, the humour comes from this this guy, this inspector who is old-fashioned. But I think his old-fashionedness would be too far out of time today. It wouldn't work. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it needed to be made in the 90s. Mm. I, I like the way that it, it tackled the issues. So it wasn't this Dixon of Doc Green. It was, it was Dixon of Doc Green tackling the 1990s. Yeah. I, I really don't think it would work now. I think public perception of the police and their role within society is different now, even to what it was then. Yeah. The characters themselves, we've got a great mix there. We've got a couple of absurd characters, so extreme mm-hmm. their caricatures. But then you've got uh, the more down-to-earth characters, Constable Habib, um, Sergeant Dawkins is probably, the, the, you know, she's pretty down-to-earth yeah. as well. And they they centre the drama and make it real. And, and, and it feels realistic, even though you've got those extreme characters within there. It feels of this world. It yeah. was good. It was good. I, I, I'm really pleased we revisited this because it's certainly gone up in my estimations. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. I'm on board with that. Go and check it out. If you haven't watched Thin Blue Line for a while, give it a chance. Yeah. And that is everything for The Thin Blue Line. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes or maybe just check out some of our other episodes. You can contact us on social media at BritcomPod, so please do that. And check out our YouTube page, British Sitcom History, for further sitcom-related content. And of course, you're going to want to come back next time because we are tackling possibly the... British sitcom. Good night all.